Britain. I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm here with Mark Vernon. This is a Science Set Free podcast. And what we're talking about is what happens when we die. This is nothing short of a big subject. In some kinds of dreams where people become aware of the fact they're dreaming, namely lucid dreams, uh, people sometimes experience themselves as seeing their physical body lying asleep in bed from a position outside it. In other words, it's very similar to an out-of-the-body experience. The only difference is the out-of-the-body experience is entered from waking life, whereas the lucid dream uh, experience is entered from sleeping, dream life. Um, And in a near-death experience, we have something very similar. So what I think this suggests is that when we die, we may continue to dream, but because we're dead, we can't wake up. Uh, Whereas, of course, in the normal dream, we can wake up, and we do. Um, So that means that the kind of after-death experience we might have would depend on what kind of person we are, what kind of fears we have, what kind of beliefs we have, uh, what kind of things we expect, and what our religious faith is. Um, If we're used to praying regularly, then in our dreams or in our after-death life, we may be able to go on praying, and that would enable us to contact a spiritual realm beyond the more limited realm we're confined to in this post-mortem dream state. And I see that as what Christians traditionally have called purgatory, uh, a realm of continued development or existence after death, where there's still change and development, but uh, it's an intermediate stage because one can go beyond it. Now, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead and in in traditions where people believe in reincarnation, there's also an intermediate state, which the Tibetans call a bardo, and people pass through this continued development, and then they take another physical reincarnation. So, anyway, this after-death state, um, as I say, would probably depend a great deal on what one's experiences are, what one's hopes are, and what one's fears are. It may be some people would be trapped in a kind of nightmare realm, in which case that should correspond to some traditional images of hell. Um, it might be that atheists who believe that things will go blank when they die uh, would find it does go blank. What happens may depend on what you expect to happen and what you believe will happen. It might be that jihadist suicide bombers who believe that they'll end up in an oasis a paradise-like oasis with almond-eyed dancing girls serving them dates. Uh, Maybe that's exactly what will happen to them, at least for a while. Um, So this uh, gives everyone what they want. Um, It's non-prescriptive, and it shows that in the afterworld what happens might depend to a very large degree on what we believe, what we expect, and what our religious faith or lack of faith is. So it seems to me... um, the most democratic way of conceiving of this, and one that actually relates itself to our own experience of dreaming. Um, I guess that for me, um, the, 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 the use, um, the thinking about dreams, um, um, raises a lot of questions. Um, so for example, um, just on this question of getting what you expect, actually I wonder whether a lot of our dreams act in a kind of corrective way. Um, so, um, if you take a more Jungian line on, on, on what dreams are about, they're kind of communications from, or from the unconscious, from another realm, that somehow are trying to balance out your uh, waking experience, your more conscious experience. And so I wonder, for example, you know, rather than 
um, the jihadists getting the oasis. Um, maybe um, their dreams are, are quite troubled dreams. This perhaps would be an empirical question you could pursue in some way or other. Um, and uh, maybe afterlife too, the, they would ex they would experience some sort of purgatory, um, you know, which would have a more judgmental effect um, upon um, or judging effect, I should say, mm. upon the life they'd led, rather than the sort of culmination of their dreams in the more popular guys. I would wonder about that. Um, I mean, maybe I should just say kind of my sort of best understanding about these things at the moment. Um, and maybe it's not unrelated again, but um, I, I'm rather taken with this notion of the subtle body, which you read about in various spiritual traditions. And it's the idea that um, our physical body, which we're most preoccupied with um, in waking consciousness, is only one, as it were, level of our existence, only one dimension to our experience. Um, and that this can be schematically broken down into different kinds of subtle body. Subtle just meaning non-tangible, non-material. Um, and that when we die, um, the connection with our physical body um, is broken, perhaps not immediately, but is severed in some permanent way. And that our attention or our, the centre of our experience shifts to one of these other subtle bodies. Um, so this is the same that um, what we do in life matters, um, the physical body does matter. It's not to discard the physical body and because it will have an impact upon different kinds of body that we may have. Um, but that the nonetheless, um, maybe it's slightly different from the dream body. And, and maybe my, part of my wondering about that analogy is that, uh, say in psychotherapy, um, the dreams are treated normally as if the dream I, but also the other people in the dreams are some kind of reflection of the personality of the individual. Um, so um, often you regard dreams um, that have other people in it where the idea is that maybe you project some part of yourself onto the other person in the dream and that maybe part of the dream communication is to pay attention to that um, lost bit of yourself and uh, in the therapy in a more sort of waking state to try to take back in what this other person represents to you rather than it as it were being straightforwardly about another person. I mean, so if I dream of my sister... Um, probably at least the first thing for me to do is to think, you know, what is it that my sister holds for me that I need to think about for myself rather than call her and say, you know, is anything up? Um, does that does that still fit with your um, idea around the dream body? Well, sort of. I mean, what you call subtle bodies and what in the esoteric tradition is called subtle bodies, um, they usually come in several forms. One is the etheric body, which is very similar to what I'd call the morphogenetic field. It's the field that shapes the body within and around the physical body that underlies the embryonic growth and maintains the health of the body. It's, the, as it were, a field of the body within and around the body. And what esoteric people then call the astral body, um, the subtle body, uh, is more or less the dream body. So um, I prefer the term dream body because it's less mystifying. Subtle body... One imagines it seen from outside as some kind of cheesecloth diaphanous structure floating in midair. Uh, it's all rather mysterious and hard to grasp. Whereas if you call it the dream body, we all know that from our own experience. It's not mysterious. It's something we experience every night. Well, it's mysterious in the sense we don't know exactly what it is or where it is. But it's not the same as our physical body. Um, and the usual assumption it's somewhere inside the brain, because the brain is the basis of all consciousness, is nothing but a materialist assumption. It may not be inside the brain. It may be in some other dimensional reality. Um, but 
wherever it is or wherever we interpret it as being, we experience it and we know it directly from our own experience, the dream body. So I prefer that to more mysterious sounding terms. Um, And I think they probably do map onto each other. So would it be the case that some sort of work on your dreams now is in a way to work um, also on your existence post-life, post-physical life anyway? Well, the Tibetans think that for a start. I mean, the, 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 there's a, a practice of lucid dreaming, uh, which they call dream yoga or dream practice. Um, they, in the Dzogchen tradition, they have people who cultivate this. Um, and people learn to have lucid dreams because then you learn to gain control of what's happening when you're in the dream state. And this is like practicing for when you're dead. Um, the difference is that in a lucid dream, you know you're dreaming, you wake up within the dream and you have some degree of conscious control over what happens. Whereas in a normal dream, you're just buffeted by psychic forces beyond your control. You're suddenly whisked from one thing and you meet somebody else and, um, and all these things just happen to you. You're not in control. You're just passively swept along with what's happening. Uh, so they, they would see it as a form of practicing. But then you see the question of whether the people in our dreams are just projections of ourselves. You see, this theory in psychotherapy, I mean, it's only a theory after all, and I think it may be true sometimes that they're, as it were, projections of ourselves, but then there's the question of how big is ourself? I mean, does ourself actually include our relationships with other people? Um, And in some cases, I don't think they are just projections, because some people who work in dream groups who share their dreams every day and have a practice of dreaming together, find that after a while of sharing dreams with people, sometimes on what are called dream retreats, that um, they find that they're sharing dreams, that the two people meet each other in their dreams, and they've had the same or a very similar dream, that there's a kind of telepathic overlap in the dream state. Now, if that's the case, the other person they meet in the dream is not just a projection of some part of themselves, that they are actually meeting another person in their dreams, it seems. Yeah, I mean, that would fit, I think, because, again, in in the psychotherapeutic understanding, um, it's actually quite hard to meet somebody else because we're um, often so... uh, our, Our perception of other people in the world around us is often so shaped by our projections. And so to come to under some understanding of your projections... Um, is not to say that the other person disappears, but that you perhaps see them clearly for the first time. Um, so maybe similarly in dream work, um, there may well be that you perceive someone in the dream because of your own particular issues. Um, but once that purgation, and it's interesting that it is a kind of purgation, I think, you know, like a kind of purgatory, um, but in this life rather than the next, mm. well, that, that sort of purging um, clears the view. Um, and it'd be very interesting actually to think about how one's dreams change over the course of a period of psychotherapy, um, for example. And I'm yes. sure they do change. And it is a long process. You know, it's not just... A, in a way, it is a first step, uh, but it's absolutely crucial first step and one that can often take quite a long time. But now I'm thinking about it, it, it feels like it. there's more integration there um, than perhaps mm. I first thought. Well, I, presumably people who do psychotherapy or who conduct psychotherapeutic sessions must keep records sometimes. And whether or not the dreams do change over the period of, of psychotherapy, 
presumably can be documented empirically. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, to to think personally, I recently had a dream of uh, my maternal grandfather, um, and uh, this dream felt to me not just about my relationship with him, but actually felt like some kind of uh, blessing from him about something that I was quite concerned with at the time. And I did take it um, as uh, a kind of um, a connection with... Um, that side um, of my family and the life that that represents, therefore, um, as some sort of, you know, visitation, I guess, from him. Um, And it was like another side of him that personally um, I felt I didn't really know much about in this life, but that was there actually for me too, and that in some way I'd been blinded to, but now could see, you might say. Well, that's really, really interesting, because what it suggests is that if in when we're dreaming while we're alive we enter a dream realm, which is one where the normal rules don't apply. The rules of dreaming apply, but not the rules of physical life. And if the dead are in a kind of dream world, then these dream worlds could overlap, where they're they're not in the normal space-time continuum. So it may be that in our dreams we can actually meet ancestors who are now dead, and we can actually have communications with them. And it may be that they're not just projections of our own waking life or a subconscious mind, but that they have an autonomous existence in the dream world that we can actually encounter and interact with, as you felt you were doing. And this encounter with the dead through our dreams, um, in our dreams, um, might not just be with our own ancestors. It could also be with other people who are dead, who we can relate to. I'm thinking in particular of the saints. Saints are dead people. You can't be a saint while you're alive, at least in the Christian tradition. You've got to die first before you can become a saint. Um, And the saints are people to whom in the Catholic and Anglican tradition you can pray, you can ask them for help. So one's actually forming a relationship with a dead person through praying to a saint. The Blessed Virgin Mary Millions of people pray to the hundreds of millions pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary every day. In the Catholic tradition, millions of people pray every day to Saint Anthony if they've lost something. They want Saint Anthony to help them find it. And then Saint Jude, people pray to Saint Jude for lost causes, all sorts of things that might seem unlikely. They pray to Saint Jude for. So there's all these different saints to whom people are praying, um, and who presumably. Um, if dead people exist in the dream world still, are active presences in the dream world, and not just in one person's dream. Your maternal grandfather might just have appeared in your dream then. He might not have had a very busy time communicating with other people. (laughs) It might have been quite rare for him to appear in the dream of one of his descendants. But for a busy saint like St. Anthony, uh, they might be in millions of dreams every night. Um, And it doesn't just have to be dead people. Um, because if you're a Hindu and you think of Ganesh as a form of Shiva, um, Ganesh, the elephant-headed god, is on calendars and paintings on <coughs> temples and statues, and many people have images of Ganesh in their homes. If people dream of Ganesh, then Ganesh was never an actual real person. He's a kind of mythological figure, but he has a numinous power, and he's a manifestation of a god. Then Maybe uh, people really are relating to Ganesh 
through their dreams. So these these relationships in dreams could include dead people. They could also include archetypal figures. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, the word archetypal there, because I guess that's the way I've understood, um, the, as you say, the, the busy saints. Um, uh, perhaps um, another way of understanding that is to think that there are these kind of archetypal uh, presences, persons, uh, forces, um, and that in different traditions, we, with our imagination, as it were, and populate them with the images that are available to us through our religious traditions, you know, like the Virgin Mary. But um, as the maternal gods will look different to other people in different different traditions. But sort of behind that immediate imagery, which one might experience when in waking life or in, in dreams as well, um, there lies something which in a way is beyond our imagining, but we're nonetheless somehow sort of connecting to. So relating to the saints in prayers and in dreams would be different from, say, relating to an immediate relative. And, yes. like, and that, that would make sense because it's a different quality of connection you're seeking. Um, you know, you, the, the, there's something, uh, if you reflect upon, you know, why you might pray to a, sta- a saint as opposed to want to have to a connection to an ancestor. Um, you know, we just uh, um, had uh, the uh, um, All Souls Day and then also the 100th anniversary of the First World War. And that kind of connection to the dead um, feels very, very important, but very different kind of quality to, say, praying to saints. Yes. Um, and that would be reflected in this notion of archetypal um, persons as well as the immediate persons that we're related to. I suppose it depends on our intention. When we pray to saints, we're not so much praying for the saint, we're praying to the saint. We're asking the saint to help us in some way. Whereas many people who pray for the departed, if we pray for um, all, all Souls Day, for ancestors or people we've known who've passed over, we're actually praying for something for them. Um, and the most basic prayer for the dead, of course, is the Requiem prayer. Uh, may they rest in peace and may light perpetual shine upon them. This is a prayer asking for something for the departed. Um, and presumably resting in peace can mean various things, but one reason that people wanted and, and people to rest in peace is so they didn't come back and trouble the living. Um, you know, it's because there's always been a fear of the dead coming back to haunt the living, sometimes in literal hauntings through ghosts or um, hauntings of one kind or another. Um, yeah, I mean, I do find quite persuasive the understanding of hauntings, which suggests that it's people that have died but haven't quite realised they've died. Yes. And that uh, part of what might go on when you bless a house um, is uh, helping the dead to realise they are dead and that their ties are loosened now with this place and that um, their their future lies elsewhere. That's right. Well, I mean, it's it's helping them to move on. And part of, when I was um, living in India uh, in Father Bede's ashram, it was on the bank of a sacred river, the Kauvery, in Tamil Nadu. And the village cremation ground was right next to the ashram. So people would come from the village and they had to walk down a lane towards the river, about half a mile from the village. So I often got to see these cremations. Um, they had a fire and they burned the body on the fire. It wasn't a kind of modern-style crematorium, of course. Um, one day, because I knew people in the village, and, and I, I noticed uh, the beer being carried down to the cremation ground, and they were dropping small change coins along the lane behind um, the procession. 
So I said, why were they doing that? I asked a friend in the village. And they said, oh, well, this man was an elderly Brahmin who died, and he was extremely mean, and uh, he's with, he was a problem to his family. And they didn't want him hanging around. Uh, they were rather pleased that he could be moved on to another realm. And they were dropping the coins because they knew that uh, he was so interested in money that he'd follow the trail of coins to the cremation ground and they'd be able to you know, burn you know, the body. He'd be there at his cremation. He wouldn't hang around the house causing trouble. Um, so you see, here's an example where people were actually wanting to move them on. So the may they rest in peace is partly for their own sake, but I think partly for the sake of living, of the living, because there's a way in which people want to move the dead on rather than have them hanging around inappropriately. Yeah, well, that, that, that feels, there's a parallel there with a kind of therapy that I'm involved with called constellations. Um, and it's a systemic therapy. So it's interested in not just you as an individual, but you in relation to your, well, any system that you might belong to, maybe work or culture more generally, but certainly your family. Um, and the broad idea is that um, when the links and relationships in the system are kind of open and flowing, that life tends to go well, but they can get blocked um, when things um, aren't going so well. And people often represent dead relatives in constellations. Um, and when someone is representing a dead relative, I should I should say this, this isn't like role-playing. It, it is yeah. trying to be sort of open to um, the, the, the force, the life that the dead person might represent. Um, but it's often not a great thing when the dead are really rather alive. Um, you really want a dead person in a constellation to sort of be dead and having moved on in some way. Mm. Um, and, and it does seem that a lot of psychological problems for people can be related to um, the dead who are still a bit too alive. Yes. Um, and maybe because they feel that there's been an injustice done to them or, um, you know, something that um, needs to have some attention paid towards it too. And so in a ritualized way, um, the constellation can often be resolved by um, respectfully, and, and things like respect are really crucial, I think, in this, um, uh, acknowledging um, what may be troubling the dead. And uh, then often the dead will respond that actually it's better for them when the living live free of the past, resourced from the past, but not, not but free from the entanglements of the past as well. Mm. You often see that kind of dynamic emerging. Mm. Very interesting. And I think it helps show why in traditional cultures there's quite a lot of attention paid to funeral rites, to helping people pass over properly, and then to respect them after they've, and to acknowledge them. All Souls Day is one way in which we can do it. Um, but in Catholic countries, on All Souls Day, they very often visit the graves of their dead ancestors, put flowers there, light candles. In Mexico, the Day of the Dead is a huge celebration of All Souls Day. And it's one way of recognizing and relating to the dead annually. It's the festival where this can happen. Now, in our modern secular world, people don't bother with this. They, they don't acknowledge the dead. I mean, they may have a picture of them on the mantelpiece or something, but it doesn't go much beyond that for a lot of people. And, um, mm. and that must mean that there are a lot of people who've died who don't feel very acknowledged. Um, and who uh, could be a, a problem in, in people's lives. Yeah, I mean, it's very funny you said because uh, I was once on a, a Constellations weekend and I went back home where I live in South London and as I just walked towards um, where we live and there's a hall next door and there was a group of Ghanaians in the hall next door and I recognised one of them and said hello and said, what are you doing? And, and uh, he said, well, this is our sort of uh, family wake. 
Um, and I said, I'm sorry, and I didn't realise anyone died. And they said, oh, it's not that anyone immediately has died, but we meet together once a year to remember our dead. Um, and this is sort of part and parcel of what we did. Mm. And this seemed to me in that moment to be an eminently sensible thing to be doing. Yes. And I did wonder what in my kind of white Britishness um, I was rather missing out on and having to go to these special workshops somehow to try and yes. you know, make up for. Yes. Well, I think in, in, in most traditional cultures, they have a way of dealing with it. They have ceremonies. I mean, among Hindus, there's not just the funeral, but then there's a ceremony at 40 days for the, you know, to, and then there's sort of different ceremonies at different times after that. The Chinese have them too, because they're, of course, very concerned with their ancestors and have ancestor shrines in their houses traditionally, and the Japanese as well. I mean, most cultures have a way of dealing with the ancestors, honouring them and including them on the grounds that the ancestors will feel happier and will have a benevolent influence on their descendants. Whereas what's bad uh, for dead people is to be excluded, ignored and forgotten. I mean, living people don't like that either, uh, to be excluded, ignored and forgotten. Um, and I think it's very, very interesting that we're just rediscovering and re-recognizing the importance of these ceremonies in many different cultures. And I think one reason that they're ignored in our culture is the idea that when you die, you don't, everything just goes blank. The materialist idea that the mind's nothing but the brain. Uh, it means that doing anything about the dead is completely futile or pointless. Um, and it may be that people who are materialists, when they die, do go blank, and maybe it is pointless doing um, things for materialists. But um, who knows? It, it may not, even for people who are convinced militant atheists, it may not go blank when they die, and they don't know that, we don't know that. But even for people who are convinced uh, militant atheists, most of their ancestors weren't and um, may still want to be acknowledged. And so I think it's a wonderful thing that we still have national ceremonies like Remembrance Sunday, um, and the wonderful thing at the Tower of the London, those poppies commemorating all those who died in the First World War from Britain and the Commonwealth, 900,000 poppies, one per person. Um, we still do have national ceremonies where we do acknowledge and and. Uh, and relate to those who've gone before. Yeah, I completely agree.